Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy upon us sinners. Amen. Again we pray. Almighty and everlasting God, you despise nothing you have made and forgive the sins of all who are penitent. Create in us new and contrite hearts that lamenting our sins and acknowledging our wretchedness, we may receive from you full pardon and forgiveness. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Okay. Um, sin is evil death. And the Lord wishes to give you life, not death. Sin disagrees with God. Faith agrees with God. That's why if you have to sum up faith with one word, if I ask you, what does faith say? Faith says... Well, that's what faith does, but what is the word of agreement? When faith speaks, what is the word that faith says? Mm, yeah, but can you say that in a more churchly way? Amen. Pardon me? Amen. Yes, good. So when faith speaks, faith says amen. That's why amen is such a big deal. That's why I make sure that when you say amen, you say it like you mean it, because that is the voice of faith. Now that doesn't mean that if you say a weak amen, I'm going to question your faith, but it, it does mean that you need encouragement to be more bold. Which means that when you come up like this, when you come up to the altar and uh, I give you the dismissing blessing, the dismissal, and then you, and I say, you know, depart in peace, amen, I don't care if you are the only person that gets that glorious solo that says amen, do it. Because when I say amen to you, I am stating this is how it's going to be. And when you say amen back, you are saying, yes, I want it to be that way, and I believe that it is that way, and that's how it is. There's a, there's a response. My amen means something, but yours also means something. So it's not just that there's repetition, which there is, which is good, and we'll talk about repetition later, but it's also that amen is the voice of faith because faith agrees. So when Jesus says to you, Amen, amen, I say to you, because that's how it is in Scripture in the Greek. Assuredly, I say to you is amen, amen. So if we reverse it, it's like this. Your sins are forgiven you, amen, and you say amen. Assuredly, I say to you, this is most certainly true. Your sins are forgiven you. And then what do you say? Yes, they are forgiven me, which is amen. Faith agrees. That's the, the number one thing that you should remember about faith, because faith and, and sin contrast one another, or they are, they are contrasted, because faith agrees, and where faith agrees, sin disagrees. Where faith says, amen, yes, sin says, mm, no, no thanks. Uh, and that's, that's the problem with sin. That's why we would say that sin is rebellion against God. God says, do this, and sin says, eh, I don't really feel like it. And that's an issue. Um, Think about it this way, when you were a child and your, your father told you, hey, go and do your chores, if you had said, or maybe you did this or tried it one time, and you said, nah, no, or I don't really feel like doing that right now, I mean, what are the consequences for that? <laughs> it, right, so it's not even that you didn't do the thing, it's that you decided and then said, I'm not going to do it. 
See, and that comes even before you like clean your room. Uh, I don't feel like it. Okay, it doesn't matter that you did or didn't clean your room at that point. What matters is your attitude toward the command. So there's a difference between saying, oh yes, I'll clean my room, and no, I'm not going to clean my room. And it happens right there, which is why when we talk about the first sin, the fall in the garden, it isn't primarily that they ate the fruit. Now, was eating the fruit a sin? Absolutely. But in order to eat the fruit, they first have to be of the mindset that I'm going to do this. They have to commit themselves to the act and then commit the act. That's why the sin is one of pride, because they decide for themselves, I'm going to decide what's good for me, God isn't, and, and then I decide this is good. And so there's two things right there that are related, but, but there's an order to it. Um, the only sin that cannot be forgiven is what? The sin that's not given to Christ. Yeah, the sin that Jesus doesn't have. Any sin you give to Jesus is done. It's obliterated. Jesus is the undoer. It's not that he forgets about it. It's that he completely erases it. It never happened. That's, you, think about absolution differently, or you, you should have thought about it differently after last week, but I'm encouraging you, if you didn't, to think about it differently now. It's not that Jesus just says, well, I'm going to clean you, and, you know, the, there's still dirt. Um, it's just somewhere else now. It's just not on you. It isn't even that. Um, that's Jesus before the crucifixion. But in and after the crucifixion, they're gone. They're consumed. It's like throwing something into the fire. You, know, you, throw, you throw your letter into the fire, and nobody's ever going to read it again because it doesn't exist. There is nothing to read. It's gone completely. So that's the thing about your sins. That's why God doesn't remember, even though he's omniscient. Remember that. God can't remember something that doesn't exist. Anything that exists, he will remember. So when he says, I don't remember your sins, it means there aren't any sins to remember. Why? Because I've obliterated them. Because Jesus has not only taken them away, but has undone them. You know, you say, I can't undo what I've done. True, you can't, but Jesus can, and he does. Um, so when, it, when we talk about confession and absolution, you want to remember memory is a good thing and also can be a bad thing. We want it to be a good thing in that you say, may the memory of my sin be so terrible I never wish to commit that sin again. So that's a good thing. Now, uh, forgiveness from the pastor, excuse me, forgiveness from the pastor as from God himself, like the catechism says, uh, remits the spiritual consequences of sin. And what I mean by that is, it takes away your sin. When you go to the pastor and the pastor says, I forgive you your sins, like we did on Ash Wednesday, uh, as a called and ordained servant of Christ, and by his, or in the stead and by the command of my Lord Jesus Christ, I forgive you all your sins. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Then you walk away and your sins are actually forgiven. Um, but the pastor does not, by doing that, take away the physical, uh, temporal consequences of your sins. And that's important because of the idea of penance. And we do remember that we do believe in penance. Lutherans do believe in penance um, as long as penance is understood to be restitution. So the greatest example of that is Zacchaeus, which we didn't have time to look at last week, and we don't have time to look at today. This is just kind of review. But what does Zacchaeus do? Um, Jesus says, 
I'm coming to your house, which is blasphemous for him to say that because Zacchaeus is a tax collector. And there are, you know, there's a reason why the Jews say he eats with sinners and tax collectors. Why, doesn't, why don't they just say uh, he eats with sinners and tax collectors are, in, are numbered with the sinners? Have you ever read Dante's Inferno? Oh, you should read it. It's, it's actually very good. Oh, have you read it? Okay. I saw, I saw you, and then I thought maybe you didn't think that it was good. It has its purpose. It's not good in that it provides you an accurate description of what things are going to look like. It describes sort of a beatific vision of what things look like. And the Inferno specifically has some, um, has some political commentary in it as well. So it's not just religious, it's also political. So like all of his political enemies go into deeper rings of hell. <laughs> so, but anyway, the, the idea of the Inferno or in um, Paradiso, um, that there are different levels. Uh, <laughs> there are different levels in the world. That there are different consequences for different sins. Now, for God, sin is sin. So the world doesn't, or God doesn't work like Dante's Inferno because it's not tiered. But the world does. So then there's restitution for you, where you don't undo what you have done, but you do your best to mitigate the damages. So when you come to me, this is the example I always use, is robbing the bank, because it's the, most, it's the easiest one to understand. So when you rob the bank and you confess your sins, I will absolve you. Your sins are forgiven you. And the Lord doesn't know that you have committed a sin because the sin was never committed because Jesus undid it, which means it doesn't even exist. But temporally within the earth, it was committed. And while Jesus undoes the undoes the spiritual consequences of your sins and ultimately takes away the sin, the act has still been done temporally, so there are still consequences. So I will absolve you for robbing the bank, and then I will go with you to the police station so that you return all of the money and turn yourself in and then serve your time. Um, and that's your restitution, that's your penance. So when you've done something wrong and you go to confession and absolution, your pastor very well may give you penance. If you've hurt somebody um, by your words or deeds, and that's what you come to confess, your pastor may say, okay, your sins are forgiven. Now, what you need to do is, you need to go and make amends with that person, blah, 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 blah. Go do this or do that or do that, and that's your penance. Making restitution, doing your best to mitigate the damage that was caused, not erase it. Um, how do you know you've made a good confession? Think of the prodigal son. You know you've made a good confession when there's nothing left to say. When you say, I've done this and this and this and this, and there's no excuse for it, I didn't want to do it and I did it anyway, and that's just the bottom line of it. That's a good confession. There's nothing more to say. Sin, there's never an excuse for sin. Don't ever bring an excuse into private confession and absolution. If you do, your pastor will reprimand you. That's not, that, that's not valid. It doesn't, it doesn't, doesn't fly in here. Excuses don't matter. Maybe there, maybe an excuse flies somewhere else, but it never flies here because there's, sin is always inexcusable. That's why, uh, you know, when, when kids are growing up, 
and you're teaching them to apologize, what so often is the common response to an apology? I'm sorry that I did this. Maybe you haven't... Yeah, well, that's what you're supposed to say. And this is one of my little kind of pet peeves. You know, I'm not trying to chastise anyone for their parenting method, but what I hear so often is, I'm sorry that I did this. It's okay. And you say, no, actually, it isn't okay. The whole fact that it happened means it isn't okay. It's inexcusable. Don't say it's okay. The confession doesn't make it okay. Sin is never okay. That's why... I forgive you is the more appropriate response because it, it wasn't okay for you to do that. And when you say, I forgive you, you are acknowledging there was no excuse for that. But I am moving past that uh, even though there wasn't an excuse for it. And I will behave as if it didn't happen. Okay, um, okay so today we've, we've talked a lot about confession and absolution. Today we're going to tangentially talk about that, because what we need to talk about now is the office of the keys. So you know what confession and absolution are, you know what repentance is, you know what contrition, I mean, you know all of this stuff, you know kind of how it works, but the question now is, who forgives your sins? How does whoever forgives your sins forgive your sins? And what does it look like? I'm really big on the question, what does it look like? And one of the reasons I'm big on that is because the sacraments, uh, in the sacraments specifically, but the church generally, is filled with the musterion, the mysteries of God. And if something is a mystery, it means that by default, you are not able fully to comprehend it. So what we do with the church is we try to help you to comprehend it the very best that we can by giving you earthly things so that you come cl as close as you can to understanding these mysteries. And that's the question, what does it look like? So if I asked you, um, what does it, Jesus gives you his body and his, and his blood, doesn't he? You say, well, yeah, sure he does. And I say, okay, but what does that look like? I think I want you to start thinking about things that way. What does it look like that God is, you know, when you walk into church, there's that passage from Habakkuk, because I got tired of people being really loud in there. <laughs> if we really believe that that's a holy space, then let's act like, you know, if that's really God's house, then let's act like it's God's house. If God is, if it's really divine service, if it's really Gottesdienst, you know, the, the book says divine service, and that means more than this is what we say today, and this is what we sing today. It means God is here, and God is performing us a service. God's like the waiter and the chef, where you sit down, and then he comes to you, and he does everything for you. So if we really believe that that's happening, then everything we do should also reflect that belief. So uh, I got sort of, you know, sort of peeved that people were coming in and, hey, how's it going? And you think, you know, this is... Do that outside. I had a Roman Catholic friend. Actually, it's Pastor Kinney's wife. I hope I'm not ousting her, but um, she grew up in a very, very, very like Shiite Roman Catholic family. And then she, she of course, dated and then married this Shiite Lutheran. <laughs> and uh, so she went to church with him at one point and she said, boy, this is really, uh, I like this, it's, it's Catholic. And, and he said, yeah, yeah, it is. And she said, but you know what? Something really bothers me. 
And he said, what? And she said, nobody here believes that there's something holy here. And he said, well, yes, we do, yes, we do. And she said, I wouldn't be able to tell that just from looking. And he said, well, why? And she said, because I walked into the sanctuary, which is a holy space, and that's where the altar is, and that's where God is, and that's where God works. And everybody was sitting in there laughing and chatting, and you know, they, they say their parts in the liturgy, but then the offering comes, and everybody's giggling and laughing and telling jokes while they're passing the plate. And, and he, she said, just nobody treated it like there was actually something going on there. And he went, oh. He said, boy, you know, I, know, I guess I never thought about that. And that's something that really hit him hard. And it, when, when she told that to me, too, that I thought, boy, you know, I've always sort of thought it was strange that people talked but this is, somebody put it in words better than I ever could. So anyway, on that, that Habakkuk verse there. Um, shoot, now I forgot actually what I was saying. Well, anyway, it probably didn't matter. Silence is gold. It is, it is. And the thing is, God desires silence, and silence is good for a Christian, but silence doesn't mean no noise. That's the, silence doesn't mean no noise, no sound. There's a difference between deafness and silence. Just like there's a, a difference between noise and sound. There can be sound, and in fact, there is sort of a, a sacred sound in, in, in church, but it isn't noise. There's a difference between noise and that, and there's a difference between the kind of holy silence and reverence that we offer in that space, or that we, that we perform in that space, um, and the deafness silence, like, you know, like at a golf course. <laughs> you know, no sound! There's a difference between that. Um, anyway. That's a different thing. No, don't. Your sister is very sweet, but she should never feel bad about kids making noise in the service. And uh, my opinion is, if I can't, if I, wearing a microphone and attached to speakers, cannot out-preach or out-speak a child in the back row, then I'm really not worth what you're paying me. <laughs> so, you know, the thing is, you know, there's a, there's, there's a line where, you know, you cross a threshold and perhaps maybe the child is being too loud and something needs to be done, but kids make noise in church. I mean, my daughter does. And that's, they grow out of that, but they do make noise and the congregation is called to be patient in love with the noises of children. Children will say things and they'll have a, 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 a squawk and that's okay, and they should be allowed to do that. You know, they shouldn't be, they shouldn't hate church because when we come here, we don't get to, you know, we, we're always getting in trouble when we're always being shushed. And the best thing to do is try and harness their desire to make noise and to speak by teaching them how to say their, their parts of the liturgy so that they know, hey, I actually can make noise here, and here's when I get to do it, and here's when I, I should not do that. But. And then, and then they know when's an appropriate time to make noise and when isn't. But uh, when, they, when, they, when they speak or sing or do something and it's at another time, it, 
you know, parents shouldn't feel embarrassed about that. I have a whole thing in the bulletin about that because, and this is why I don't get bothered by it. Uh, hearing the sounds of children in your church mean that your church has children in it. And I would rather hear the sounds of children in my sanctuary and know that I can speak over them if I need to than have a congregation that is so stagnant that it has no children at all. So if children are making noise in the service, well then that's a good place for us to be. You know, appropriate noise in the service. You know, the child that stands on, on the pew and just screams at the top of his voice during the whole service probably needs to be taken outside, but uh, I don't think we have anything like that. Well, so. it's a huge blessing to parents when you have something right there in the bulletin because sometimes, sometimes other members of the congregation aren't quite on board. You know, we... I know. <laughs> <laughs> That's why there's something in the bulletin. <laughs> You know, the church can be, the church can be the most judgmental place in the world, and you really have to work in the church to cultivate a an ethos that is different than that, because it's really easy to go. Oh, don't want to get their kids under control, and you think, just let the kids be kids. This is this is why, when uh, I think it's Bo comes up. And, and he looks at my hand, and he does this, and I see Tabitha go beat red, and she grabs his hand and says, just let him, he's learning. If he, wants to, if he wants to make the same sign that the pastor just let him do it. If he wants to get close there and look at everything, let him do it. If he, sometimes the kids will grab onto my pectoral crucifix when I'm giving them the blessing, and the parents are always just mortified. Let him do it. If they want to hold on to my uh, chasuble when I get close and look at all the designs, let them do it. I don't care because they're seeing things and they're learning. And ultimately for kids as well as adults, church should be engaging you on every sense, including the sense of touch. So when you get, when they get to that curious age and they want to touch the Jesus on pastor's neck or they want to feel what his vestments feel like, let them do them. Don't, don't stop them. You know, that's part of what Jesus means when he says, let the children come to me. Although they're being annoying, Jesus, no, let them come here. You think all of those kids were you know, behaving like they should have? Obviously not, because if they were, the disciples wouldn't have been irritated by those kids. So let, the, you know, let them do that. If they want to sing the verba with me while I'm chanting them, let them do it. You know, I love that, in fact. I love it when we come to midweek, and it's whatever the year is in our cycle where we're working on the words of institution, and I say, okay, what are these words from the catechism? And all the kids go, ah, oh, our Lord Jesus Christ. I say, yes, do it. If you want to sing those, sing them. I don't care because that means you're learning and that's great. I love all of that stuff. You know, and if, if your kids want to look at the stained glass windows or if they want to go over there and, and touch the glass, that's, that can be washed. Let them put their fingerprints on the glass. I don't care. We can wash that. There, you can't undo not letting your kid engage with the service. Fingerprints, oh, that, that those will come off. But not letting them interact is something that can't be undone. When we were in Lee Summit, St. Matthew, when some of our kids were little, the kids were spread out, Pastor Kreisinger was always fighting parents who wanted a nursery, constantly. 
And then some parents would be really strong-minded and they'd be like, no, we're organizing a nursery. And he would let them do it, but then it would, it, you know, it would fade away and then there'd be more. And he, he let people know, just bring your kids. And they would be like, but I can't get what I need out of the service if I'm distracted by my child. Then have your child sit with someone else. <laughs> you know. I didn't think you were going to say that. Do you, do you know how many people there are in the church who would say, oh, do you want us to take your child for... Tons of them. Some, every now and then, Carolyn gives to your shop, too. So, you know, then, then let your child sit with someone If it bothers you that much, let them sit with someone else. This is why I say, too, let your kids sit in the front. Yeah. Everybody thinks, oh, we need to put our kids in the back so they're not a distraction. No, 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 no. Put them in the front. You put your kids in the front and let them see all the action. Let them see what pastor's doing. Let them see the things that pastor picks up and touches. Let them see how I take the lids off things. Let them look at everything. Let them watch everything. I mean, get them engaged. You know, don't, parents should never feel like they need to put their kids in the back because, well, they're going to make noise. So what if they make a little bit of noise and they're in the front? The rest of the congregation can learn to be more patient. You know, everybody learns when there's children there, the children especially, and the adults can learn too. Uh, that having children is a good thing and that children are children. And even the most disciplined of child is going to be a child. So uh, that's how it is, and that's great, and we're, and we're happy. And if the, if the child makes a noise, let him make a noise. You know, if they're singing the hymn and, you think that, and they're singing nonsense words and it's not the right tune, you don't shush them. That happens every now and then too. Not, not specifically here, but I've been in places where the congregation is singing a hymn and the child opens up a book and pretends to sing and is singing nonsense at a completely different tune at a completely different pace and the parents go, stop that. No, you know, you're, you're killing your child when you do that. Let them, let them sing. Yeah, they're doing what you're doing. You're, you know, your, your two, three-year-old isn't going to be able to sing all of these tunes, but they're singing and they're singing because you're singing and because pastor is singing and the congregation is singing and, be, you know, that they take a book and sing is already a testament to the intelligence of the child in having learned from the church service to know, oh, this is the time now when we sing. And that's a good thing. Who cares if they sing the right words? Who cares if they sing the right tune? Let them sing. I love hearing Saoirse when, she, when she's on time and she knows the word and she'll belt it. Yeah, well, you know this part. yes, and she does. There was a Sunday, this was I think two Sundays ago, she sang the Agnus Day really, really well. And then I heard this, and I don't know if anybody else did, but she, so that got done, and then it was dead silence while I was getting, you know, standing up from commuting myself in the eldership, and I heard her say, okay, and now I sing the Ariel song. <laughs> and Carolyn was like, no, no, you don't. <laughs> and I was up there, and I heard it, and I, I had to kind of turn cause, and to keep my composure because that was just... So that's an example of appropriate and not appropriate things to sing in church. But, you know, God bless her. She's so happy to sing. Uh, you know, and there was a pastor, an older pastor who has since died when I was growing up in that congregation, dear friend of mine. And when my youngest cousin was about Saoirse's age, she would, she would open that hymnal, it'd be upside down on whatever page it was, but when the congregation stood up and sang that hymn, that little girl was up and she was belting her little lungs out, complete nonsense. And that pastor, uh, he, had, he had been in front of us, um, in the pew in front of us at one point, and he turned around after the service when everyone was walking out, and he just looked at my aunt and uncle and he said, never 
tell her to be quiet. And that's, that's the truth. And in fact, there is nothing more uh, that I love than hearing little kids sing nonsense during the hymns. I love it. Absolutely adore it. So let your kids do that. And anyone who's listening to this, let your kids do it. And tell your sister. If he, wants to, if he wants to do that, if he wants to do it, let him. It doesn't bother me at all. It doesn't bother me. Heck, Jesus let the disciples manhandle him when he came into the room. Put your hand, he told Thomas, don't touch my side. Put your hand in it. Get it in there. You know, hey, who am I to be different than Jesus? And, and if, if the kids, kids want to come and, and you know, as I'm walking by, giving them, the, the woman touched Jesus' garment as he walked by and he didn't, I can't pretend to be better than Jesus. I'm not more religious than Jesus. That's to be a Pharisee, is to be more religious than Jesus. My job is to be Jesus and to do what Jesus does. And that means that if a child wants to grasp the hem of my robe as I walk by, who am I to stop them? Of course, I'm not going to feel the power go out of me, probably. But <laughs> All right, we got to scoot. Let's look at Mark chapter 2. This is a really, really important little thing, and you probably don't know why it's so important. All right, Mark chapter 2, verse 1. And again, he, that is Jesus, entered Capernaum after some days. And it was heard that he was in the house. That's neat, uh, I think, that he was in the house, because it implies that people reading this know what house he's in. There are some specific houses, this is neither here nor there, but there are some specific houses that Jesus uses, um, like the, the upper room. So Jesus says, go to a certain place, go to this house. And then there's speculation about, well, whose house was it that they were in? And then there's, of course, Peter's house, uh, that was sort of a base of operations, and there are some other houses that he's received. So he doesn't have his own house, but he's always received into the houses of others. So he's at the house. Immediately, this is Mark's gospel, everything is immediate. Oh, you have to buckle in to read Mark. Immediately, everyone gathered together so that there was no longer room to receive them, not even near the door. It was like a rave, it was packed. And he preached the word to them. Then they came to him, bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. Excuse me. And when they could not come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. So they had broken through. Excuse me. So when they had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. What a, what a marvelous thing. I mean, stop, just stop and think about that for a second. What a marvelous thing. It's so packed in there, like sardines in a can. Nobody can even stand in the doorway. And these friends of this paralytic are so desperate to get to Jesus that they tear the roof off. Think about that. Now that is an example of faith. Because I told you, what does faith always want? Faith always wants the things that Jesus says are good. Faith always wants to go where Jesus is and wants to receive the things that Jesus gives. And faith is unstoppable. No roof is going to stop faith. So uh, 
That's why, by the way, when you go to somebody and you say, hey, would you like the sacrament? And they say, no. You have to stop and think, well, what's wrong with you? Because faith always wants the things of Jesus. Faith goes where Jesus goes because it loves Jesus and it wants the things that Jesus offers because it loves Jesus and because Jesus said, hey, these are really good and you agree with what Jesus says. When Jesus says, you need this to live, you don't say, well, okay, but what does that really mean, Jesus? You say, oh, okay, I need it to live, yes. Mm-hmm, yes, sir, Jesus. Amen. So this is the picture of faith. We must go to Jesus. By whatever means necessary, we must be where Jesus is. No government's gonna stop us. No roof is gonna stop us. No war is gonna stop us. No peace is gonna stop us. No prosperity or poverty is gonna stop us. Wherever Jesus is, we must be there. Not because it's a law, you see, but because you love Jesus so much and Jesus loves you so much, you just cannot stay away from him. You have to be with him. So they drop him through the roof. When Jesus saw their faith, see, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven you. Strange, isn't that? Why do they bring the paralytic to Jesus? To heal his body. To heal his body. And what does Jesus say? Your sins are forgiven. Well, that's kind of a letdown, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, thanks, I guess. <laughs> and some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Well, answer their question. Who can forgive sins but God alone? God well, yeah, but the, the question, just simply, who forgives sins except for God? Nobody. That's why, you know, when we talk about forgiveness on the horizontal plane, it's not a forgiveness of sins. When you say, I forgive you, it doesn't mean the same thing that it means when God says, I forgive you. There's a difference. Forgiveness for you is just, you know, living as if you had forgotten, not letting that be the thing that defines the relationship, not holding on to it, but moving beyond it. When God says, I forgive you, he actually undoes what you've done. There's a difference. Who, can un who is the great undoer? Only God. So why does this man do this? Only God can forgive sins. But Jesus immediately, when he perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus within themselves, he said to them, why do you reason about these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise, take up your bed and walk? Answer, which one's easier? Rise. Yeah. Arise, take up your mat and walk is easier to say than, well, your sins are forgiven you. So, okay, I've already done the more difficult thing, but, I, uh, excuse me, he said, but that you know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. Immediately he arose, took up the bed, and went out in the presence of them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Of course you've never seen anything like this. So um, there, are, there are some really key things here. 
Firstly, what I already said about faith. Faith wants Jesus because faith needs Jesus. It's like, you know, when you're a kid and you've fallen in love. Oh, you know, what do you want to do with your time? You want to spend all of your time with that person. And, you know, to a degree, you still kind of have that when you've been married and you're a nice, happy couple for a while. But it isn't the same kind of, like, it's okay for you to have some time to yourself every now and then. But, you know, when you're that love-struck teenager, the only thing you want is that other person. Well, that's what it's like. Your love for Jesus is like an eternal love-struck teenager love. But it's the best kind because it doesn't disappoint. You know, love-struck teenager love always kind of disappoints. But this love doesn't. But you, but you engage in it with the same fervent yearning that you did as that teenager. Oh, I just can't be away from him, Mom. No, that's you and Jesus. You must be where he is because you can't bear to be apart from him. And honestly, he can't bear to be apart from you either. He wants you to be with him. Now, how did this guy who couldn't get in the front door because of the crowd mm -hmm. was able to pick up his bed and walk out? I knew some smart aleck was going to ask that question. <laughs> <laughs> how, do, how does he... They don't have room to get in. How does he get out? Well, they make room for him to get out. I mean, the, the, they're probably in awe. They're, they're in awe, and the guy stands up and he says, "All right, go to your house." And they, go, oh, okay. And they make room for him yeah, to get I'm out. Yeah, out of the guy. This guy. Yeah. Away. See, yeah. that's like, that's one of those questions that I've got a book called The Skeptic's Bible, which you really shouldn't read. <laughs> it, it's, it's funny, honestly. This poor man worked so hard. This is the thing about atheists, right? What the atheist says is, I don't believe in God and I hate him. Do you get that? It's, they, atheists care about God almost more than a Christian does. Because in order to have that kind of fervent desire to disprove God, you have to care about God to do it. So I don't believe that God exists and I hate him and I'm going to show you how it's stupid for you to believe in him and I hate him so much and he doesn't exist. Yes? I had the weirdest conversation yesterday at work with an atheist uh -huh. about where she goes to get her advent calendars. <laughs> <laughs> I just was like, oh, you go to Trader Joe's for that? What do you say to that? that I don't know. Her? Advent calendars for the dogs? Yeah. Well, I mean, even I must eat the crumbs that fall and all, you know. I don't know. That's, that's bizarre. See, but that's, that just goes to prove the point. You know, an, 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 atheist, an atheist is just a damaged theist, really, at their core. They care about God so much more than so many Christians do. And, um, and you probably think about it more. Than most Christians. They do. So, you know, a good atheist. I, how can I espouse this dislike? A, a good atheist knows the Bible better than you do. Yeah. But here's the funny thing about that skeptic's Bible. So this poor man spends all of his time studying the Bible like a sap and looking for contradictions. And then he puts together the skeptic's Bible. And everybody says, it's so great, it's so great, it's so great. All oh, points out all the flaws. 
And then you look at all the things he thinks are contradictions and all the questions he asked, and you just laugh because you think, boy, you know, if you were a Christian, this would make so much sense to you. But you're not a part of the church, so you don't understand the church's book. Like, God says, don't commit violence, and then he goes and tells them to kill all the Canaanites. Like, well, yeah. <laughs> he tells his children not to go start fights, but anytime someone else picks a fight with them, to finish the fight. Now, what good dad doesn't tell his son that? Never start a fight, never throw the first punch, but if someone hits you, you make sure you finish that fight. You know, they agree with that logic, but then they read the Bible and they say, well, well, God doesn't do it. And every time they don't listen and do it exactly the way he tells them, it blows it's, up in their Right, face. it blows up in their, you know, just so, so this is one of those things that would be in that book like, well, it said that they couldn't get in. How did he get out? <laughs> and I'm just sort of picking on That's you okay. here, but, I, I but, you know, I guess it's a fair question. Yeah, they just make room for him. I mean, when you see a guy who's, who you know, I mean, everybody, it's like Mound City, okay? Capernaum's like Mound City. Everybody knows everybody. You, everyone knows your business better than you do. Uh, so the paralyzed guy that comes in, oh, they can tell you everywhere where he came from and everyone who he's related to and who his grandparents are and who they saw, you know, talking about his grandparents down at the seesaw the other day. You know, everything, that's, that's what this is like. So they bring this guy in. Everybody knows who he is. It's like blind Bartimaeus. Everybody knows who blind Bartimaeus is, so when he's healed, it's remarkable because they know who he is. Here's a guy they know. He's brought in. He takes up his mat and he walks. And Jesus tells him, go home. Who's going to stand in his way? Okay, yeah. Here, let me make... Yeah, go, go. It's like that. So that's the first thing, how desperately faith yearns to be with Jesus. The other thing, note, who brings the blind man? Or, excuse me, <laughs> who brings the paralytic? Four, four men. His, his friends. His friends bring him in. It's an external act. You're the paralytic, just like you're the man that St. Paul says is cold dead on a slab. You don't get to decide that you're going to be alive. The paralytic didn't get to decide that he was going to get healed. Someone else made the decision for him and brought him there. It's all external. <clears throat> he, says, he, says to the, or he says to the man, your sins are forgiven you, when he is amazed at the faith of the men who brought the paralytic. That's, a, you know, that's an easy thing to miss here. So it's an external act. Now, the question that Jesus asks of the Pharisees and the scribes, why don't they have a retort to it? Which is easier to say, that your sins are forgiven or to not be paralyzed anymore? He's put him in a box. He has because it's the same question. That's, and that's a very important thing to understand here. Where there is sin, there is yeah, think about the catechism. Where there is sin, there is death. Therefore, where there is the forgiveness of sins, there is life and salvation. Why is it that you suffer physical, bodily ailments? Why is it that you have hay fever and seasonal allergies, or when the temperature goes cold, hot, cold, hot, cold, hot, your body just says, stop it, please? Why is that? Why do you fall off the monkey bars and break your leg? Why do you have scoliosis? Why? Well, there's one very general, very easy answer to that. It's the Sunday school answer. Because you... Because you sin. Because sin causes these things. Sin is a disease, and every disease has side effects. Every disease has things that go along with it. You suffer multiple ailments, all from the one source ailment. So... 
there are physical manifestations of sin. Who is to say that when you get a cold, it's only physical? Did you ever stop and think about that? Who's to say that when you catch a virus, the only thing that you need is to have the doctor give you a shot or give you some pills? Well, it's just a virus. But a virus is just another manifestation of sin in the world and in you. Every physical ailment also is a spiritual ailment. Because your body, you are body and soul together. What affects the body affects the soul, and what affects the soul affects the body. Think about that now. So that when Jesus says, I forgive you your sins, it's the same thing as saying, take up your mat and walk. The question, which is easier? It's a trick. They're, they're both difficult, they're both impossible, because they're both the same thing. Because at its root, it is a spiritual issue. How does demonic... How does demonic possession manifest itself when you read it through the Gospels? How do people know that someone has a spirit? Think, think about this. How, what are some of the signs in Scripture that someone has a spirit? Right, there's something physically wrong. What about the kid who's mute? He can't speak and then he throws himself into the fire and he gets burned. Physical. What about when Jesus casts out a spirit from the deaf and dumb man? He can't speak, he can't hear. What does Jesus do? Casts out a spirit. But what does it look like when Jesus does that? He opens the man's ears and unstops his tongue. He doesn't say, get out, spirit. He heals the man of his ailments, and it's recorded as a spirit went out of him. You see this? Every physical ailment has a spiritual component to it. Every common cold that you get also has a spiritual component to it, which is why I say, if you're sick, come get the sacrament. That's like saying, well, I have the cold, so I shouldn't take NyQuil. What? Medicine's for the sick people, body and soul. Come and get it. But what about um, the blind man who, and they said, he sinned or his parents sinned, and he said nobody did. Yeah. And Jesus said nobody did. Right. That's not talking about, that question isn't about, is the man a sinner or are his parents a sinner? That question is, what have they done specifically that this is now the retribution from God? Okay. So what, the, the real question they're asking is, what sin, you know, who committed the sin that warranted this? Right. Him or his parents? Did his parents commit some sin that was so bad that God struck their child with blindness? Or did the child commit a sin that was so bad that he put it on himself? That's what they are asking. So, so the child is blind because he was born in sin and his parents are sinners and he lives in a sinful world, uh, but not because he performed a specific sin that God said, ooh, that was pretty bad. Well, <coughs> blind, you know, let's see you, let's see you do that again now, huh? It's not that. So every, every physical ailment has a spiritual component and every spiritual ailment also has a physical component. Again, in terms of the Eucharist, St. Paul talks about this when he chastises the Corinthians and says, there's no wonder that so many of you are physically ill because you've been mistreating the sacrament. Mistreating the sacrament isn't only bad for your soul, it's bad for your body too. So to forgive his sins and to say, take up your mat and walk, are the same thing. Because where there's the forgiveness of sins, there is life and salvation and healing.
So every healing miracle that Jesus performs, you'll see there is forgiveness of sins attached to it. And every time Jesus forgives sins, there's some kind of healing or regeneration attached to it, it because they go together. They go together. And they still do, by the way. It doesn't stop with the New Testament. It still does. So, you know, when you get sick, don't only take medicine, but also pray for relief because it's also a spiritual thing. Um, to say that it isn't is to be a Gnostic, to say that the body and the soul are not united and they're two completely different things and they don't interact with each other or talk to each other. They're in no way connected. That's what it is. But if they are really what they are, and if they are connected the way that they are, then one is affected by the other and the other is affected by the one. So that's what you see here. Now, um, there's really only one story of scripture, death and resurrection. Here it is again, paralyzed, not paralyzed, death, resurrection, cold dead on the slab, alive and walking. The paddles are put on, but somebody else does it. And this is Jesus doing it again. Um, no one can forgive sins but God alone. True. True, God alone can forgive sins. So the fact that Jesus forgives sins and, you know, what should that indicate? That he is God. But see, here's, now this is where I want you to see what does forgiveness look like? Why, why does Jesus humor the scribes and the Pharisees? Why does he give the man his legs back? Think about this for a minute. The, yes. Their question is, what is this man doing? He says that he is forgiving sins. And Jesus says, all right, my response to you is that you know that I can forgive sins. Stand up and, and walk out of here. What does, that have to, what does one have to do with the other? Unless you understand that there are spiritual and physical components to everything. And that he gets up and actually walks out of there, picks up his bed and goes home, is a testament to the fact that his sins really are forgiven. That's what it looks like. His sins are forgiven. How do they know his sins are forgiven? Not just because Jesus said it, but because they saw it. They saw what the consequences are for forgiveness of sins. Just like sin has its consequences, the forgiveness of sins has its own consequences too. Now, Every good gift of God, as you know, is distributed through means. And one of the reasons why that is, is because the gifts of God are all spiritual and you are physical. Now, you have a spiritual component to you, but you are made of matter, which is why you can receive a spiritual gift. But how do you receive the spiritual gift? Well, it has to be material. So the, that's why you know, the sacraments are what they are. Why doesn't Jesus just give you his Holy Spirit? Why, why does it have to be with water? Why does it have to be with bread and with wine? Because there has to be a material element because you receive things materially. Why is the... That's why you need the pastor to tell you you're forgiven. That's why you need the touch. That's why I'm, I'm so big on that. You know, nothing disappoints me more than going someplace or seeing a photograph, which you see every now and then in something like Lutheran Witness or in the Lutheran Reporter or the Annual or something like that. You know, and they don't do it to be cheap about it. You know, they show a photo and then look how great absolution is. But the pastor is standing like this. And you think, oh my goodness, just touch him already. Goodness gracious. No, be Jesus to him. That's your whole job. Touch him for God's sake. 
literally, for God's sake, touch him. You know, and uh, nothing is more, more disappointing to me than that. I went to private confession one time uh, with a, a pastor, and then he didn't, you know, I was, I was waiting and waiting, and then he stood up, and he just stood there like this. Your sins are free. I was like, touch me, put it on me. Come on, guy, grab your hands and put them on me. You need that. The touch is so important. And so there is, there is an aspect of means in everything that God does. Jesus is the best of all the means. How is the forgiveness of God imparted? Well, there's Jesus, the means. He touches, he talks, he eats, he dies. He physically dies. He is the means of salvation. He physically dies. It isn't just something spiritual, intangible, nebulous. It's something real, concrete, physical. That's why the body of Jesus matters so much because it has to be, the sign of the resurrection is not an empty tomb. And it's not an empty, you know, the sign of the, the sign of the, the death of Jesus is not an empty cross, and the sign of the resurrection is not an empty tomb. The death has to be a full cross because you need the body. You need that tangible thing. And the resurrection, the sign of the resurrection, the tomb has, who cares about the tomb, honestly? Who cares about the empty tomb? What you want is the body of Jesus because you want to put your hands into those wounds. You want to put your hand into that side and that's what matters. Physical, tangible means. I need the flesh. It has to be real. So, that's why you have the pastor now. Jesus is ascended. And how does Jesus now work? Through the pastor in the office of the ministry that he has established. Um, the physical nature of the means, which is in this case, you know, me and touching you and talking to you, and the physical nature of the means provides you with a concrete reality. So it's not now that some nebulous voice says, Ooh, your sins are forgiven, take heart. And you look at oh, that must be, you know, Jesus. No, you have something very real. You come and there's a man that holds your head and says, Hey, your sins are forgiven. And then you feel that cross on your forehead. It's something tangible. How do I know my sins are forgiven? Because I've been touched by Jesus and Jesus has spoken the word that hit me in the ears and I saw it with my own eyes. Yes? Where do you get it from? Where do I get what from? This touch. Great question. Fabulous question. Uh, I get it from the apostles. But where do the apostles get it? Well, it's like you were my plant. Let's look at John chapter 20. John chapter 20. Okay. Uh, starting at verse 19. Then, the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. Every time Jesus says, Peace be with you, what is that at its core? Don't be afraid. Everything's cool. <sighs> yes. Hey, I like that. Everything's cool. I'm going to steal that from you. <laughs> I've never heard you say that. I haven't, I haven't. Oh, no, you have. Have I? I yeah, you say, oh, that's cool. Oh, okay, well, good, all right. I'm a, you know, I'm a hip young guy. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, yeah, so that's, but there's something deeper there. Of course, yeah, don't be afraid, but why do people, why are people afraid when an angel is there? Why does an angel have to say, don't be afraid? Is that, is that a law, you know? Yep. Hey, don't be afraid, knock it off. Don't be afraid of me. Don't you know I'm here to be your friend? 
glowing with holy light. It's not every day you see something like that, and it's almost extraterrestrial. It is extraterrestrial. It is. That's quite literally extraterrestrial. extraterrestrial. Yeah, see, I believe in extraterrestrials. <laughs> um, but there's something deeper there. So why, And you have to ask yourself, why are people afraid? Why are they afraid when they see Jesus, the disciples? Why are folks afraid when they see an angel? And it's not just because you know, angels aren't cutesy like the ones you see on, in art or you know, the little guardian angels that you hang up. It's not just because angels are sort of scary looking. What at its core? Think about Isaiah chapter 6, where we get the Sanctus. What happens there when Isaiah has his vision of heaven and he sees the cherubim and seraphim and the throne of God? What does he say? Woe is me, for I am... I am... Why isn't he worthy? I am a sinner. I am a sinful man. I am a sinner. Why does it matter? Because you're not ready for this? No, worse than that. It. Well, you, sure, you don't deserve it. But what, ha what happens? What's the consequence of sin? Death. 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 So when sin encounters holiness, what happens? Oh, this is it. You're dead. <laughs> this is what happens. I do this in midweek. This is what happens when sin meets holiness. <laughs> That's what happens. And it's not sin to holiness. It's the other way around. Nothing happens to holiness, but sin is consumed, blown up. So just like Jesus undoes your sin, if you are a sinner, you are undone. You don't exist. You are torn apart, erased from the face of the earth. That's what happens. So when, an, when you're in the courts of heaven and you look up and you go, oh, I'm a sinner. No, please. Or an angel who is a holy creature appears to you. Ah, oh, no, please. Or Jesus appears to you and you know that you, you know, didn't believe when they said he was raised and all that. Ah, oh, no. You are afraid because you know that you are a sinner. So when the angel says, do not fear, or when, the, when Jesus says, peace be with you, what are they saying? I'm not going to zap you. Yeah, but what is it? Yes, I'm not going to zap you. But say it, put it in, in the colloquial. Because I tell you that all the time. Well, no. Yes, your sins are forgiven. That's, oh, yes. Come on, come on. <laughs> Your sins are forgiven. So, you know, when you, I, I could say to you, if, when you come to confession, I'm not going to zap you. And that's, that's, that's it. That's the cloak. Hey, I'm not going to zap you. It's, hey, we're cool. We're cool. Uh, see, your sins are forgiven. That's what he says. Ah, peace be with you. When Jesus says, peace be with you, it means, oh, one, peace is with me. And the reason why is because my sins are forgiven. It's a word of absolution. Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. This is the thing, that, this is a big pet peeve of me, doubting Thomas every time. Don't be a doubting Thomas. And you take this apostle, a martyr of the church, and you make fun of him because he wouldn't believe in the resurrection without seeing the actual flesh of Jesus. And you forget that 
when Mary Magdalene, who saw the flesh of Jesus and then believed, came and told that all of the disciples, I've seen the Lord in the flesh, none of them believed. And then all the rest of them tell Thomas, oh, come on, Thomas, he really was raised. All of them, except for Thomas, had seen him. So it's not that Thomas doesn't believe that Jesus is raised from the dead. It's that, G that Thomas can't believe fully until there is the physical manifestation. What does the resurrection matter if you never saw the body? Like, here, this is the honest question. So what if everybody came on that Easter morning and the stone was rolled away and the linens were there, and then, but then nobody ever saw Jesus ever again? What would it matter? It's right, it doesn't matter because anybody can then go take a body, stack some linens, and roll the stone. It doesn't matter. That's why the empty tomb doesn't matter. Anybody can make an empty tomb. In fact, they th the, the Pharisees thought the disciples had taken the body, and the disciples thought the Pharisees had taken the body. So they see the empty tomb, and they don't go, oh, well, that must mean he's risen. <laughs> They're afraid. Oh, no, we're going to get in trouble. Something, they're going to think we did this. Like, okay, there has to be the body. So Jesus, hey, look at me. Touch me. Look at this. I'm really here. You know, they think he's a ghost. He said, do you have some fish? Here, I'll eat some fish with you. I'll show you I'm not. Ghosts can't eat, but I can eat because I'm real. I have a body. Okay? So Jesus said to them, again, peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Yeah. Yeah. So this is the office of the keys. This is part of the authority of the office of the ministry, to forgive sins and to withhold forgiveness, to bind sins, right? Where does it come from? It comes from Christ. So, uh, when, and, and this is the other thing, you know, when he breathes on his disciples. I've said this in Bible class, but growing up we had the, the BBC radio dramatizations of the Chronicles of Narnia, which honestly are very good. Um, we had them on cassette. We listened to them in the car. You must be really old. Yeah, I'm finding out more and more. <laughs> You know, if you ask, Seth, if I said, What's, give me a hand signal for, for calling, for talking on the telephone, how would you do it? Hello. See, look at this. Like, they do it like this or like this. See, when I was growing up, it was like this because you actually had like the physical telephone, but now everybody does it like this because it's a cell phone. I felt really old. Somebody told me, sometime ask one of your middle schoolers to give you the sign of talking on the phone. I said, why? He said, you just wait. You're going to feel really old. I said, well, everybody does it like that. And they did. I was like, oh, no. <laughs> it's coming true. Yeah. I said something about a VHS, and some kids went, what is that? I said, oh. See, see the, the cartoon of the cell phone looking at the phone like this. Yeah. Says, Hi, Grandma. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So anyway, the, the David Suchet. Poirot. He was the voice of Aslan. And there is a part where Aslan breathes on all of the children. And wonderful, wonderful dramatizations. But I always chuckle at this part because David Suchet took it literally and he went, children. And that's not what Jesus does. 
the Word and the Spirit are always connected. Word never works apart from Spirit. Word never comes to you without breath. So when Jesus, it says that Jesus breathes on them and said, and what that means is that the Spirit is being breathed upon them with the words that he is, so that the Word, the word is impacting them by the Spirit that is the breath, and the breath that is the Spirit is working on them because of the Word that it delivers, Word and Spirit together. Okay, and he says, very plainly, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. That's the apostles. But how does it get to me? That was my question. <laughs> how does it, oh, how does it get from the, so we know how it gets to the apostles. So the apostles can forgive sins, sure. But how does it go from the apostles to me? Uh, I need an apostle to give it to me. And think about what I said about baptism. What are the three things you need for baptism? You need water, word, and an apostle. So who am I in that act? I am the apostle. Why? Because I hold the apostolic office, which means all of the authority that St. Peter had and St. Thomas had and St. Andrew had, I have it too, because it's Christ's authority. And how does it get to me? By apostolic succession is what we'd call it. So. The apostles put their hands on some men. Touch. Nothing worse than going to an ordination and seeing someone go like this. Touch them. Make the connection. It's like, how do you make an electrical circuit work if nothing touches? Come on, put it together. Touch them. Put your hands on them. Nobody cares. Uh, so the apostles put their hands on some guys. And the Holy Spirit and that authority went into those guys. And those guys did the same thing to some other guys, and some other guys did it, and some other guys did it. And then when I got here, some other pastors who they had been done to them, they did it to me. So there's this line where the, the apostles are sort of still alive in the office that was their office because all of that authority continues to be passed down through the rite of ordination. Ordination is an incredibly important rite because that's the, the giving of the Holy Spirit not that you didn't have it before, but the Holy Spirit now in a new capacity within a different office. So now the Holy Spirit comes upon you and says, yes, you, were you are a baptized Christian and you have the Spirit, but here's some more of the Spirit and in a different way of the Spirit because you're in the office of the Word now and now you have an authority you didn't have before. You have an authority to forgive sins. Now our evangelical brothers and sisters often have trouble with the pastor saying, I forgive you. And their, their question actually is always the same as the Pharisees uh, in Mark chapter 2, because they say, only God can forgive sins. And you say, well, yeah, I agree with that. It's when I say I, it's not the man. Why do you think I dress like this? It's not because I think it's fashionable. Um, or because I think, oh, you know, everybody should dress this way. It's really comfortable. Uh, you know, walking around in 80 degree weather. <laughs> And I'm not a martyr by any chance. I, but what I mean by that is, why? Because you need to know that when I speak, it's not me that speaks. The black is who I am. The white is who my Lord is. And the white is the collar. And the white is the voice box. That when the pastor speaks, it is Christ really who's speaking because the pastor has the authority of Christ in the, office, the apostolic office that Christ instituted and mandated. When you were, when you were ordained here, I presume, yes. did you have to tell them, be sure that you touch me, or did they already have that in mind? 
they did it. I had a, a pastor friend of mine that was part of it. And the district president is not a weenie, so he touches. Uh, so, you know, I always, it's sort of a weenie thing not to touch somebody. Do you have a pastor that you go to to do confession and stuff like that? Great question. I did, and now I need, to, I need another one. That was what my, uh, ultimately that's what my concern was. If we need it so bad, don't you? Yes. Um, no pastor should ever offer confession and absolution without also receiving it himself. And to do so is a grave sin, actually. It's a very, very bad thing for the pastor to offer absolution and to hear confession without offering it himself, offering, a, making confession. I know at Fort Wayne, candidates go to confession every day, correct? No. Not anymore? They don't. There is... There is a service of confession offered every Tuesday night at evening chapel um, in preparation for sacrament on Wednesdays. And, and any seminarian can go as often as they want to their father confessor, whoever that may be. Did but there is no mandate that they go. Did they do away with that? I mean, I had heard that... They, they may have. Um, that's one of... That's one of those Lutheran quirks where you can't mandate something because then that turns it into a law. And he, but Luther said, I'm telling you to go to confession, and I'm, when I'm telling you to go to confession, I'm telling you to be nothing else than a Christian. Like, if you're a Christian, then there are just things that you do. You can come to confession with me as often as you want. If you want to come every day, then you come every day. I'm, I'm perfectly fine with that. Um, I didn't go every day, but I did go regularly. Um, yeah, it's... The thing about confession, private confession and absolution is, and this is, this is where we'll end in, um, today, but um, the thing about private confession and absolution is it's not a matter of how often I need to go. Um, sort of like with, with the Eucharist, it's the same thing. How often, do I, how often do I have to go? And that's where things like holy days of obligation are, in, in my opinion, bad. I know that they, and, and you know, being fair, to Roman Catholicism, the reason for having a holy day of obligation is to ensure that people are actually getting the sacrament because people take their freedom of the, of the gospel and then just don't go. Say, well, blah, 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 I'll just not go. So then they try to correct that by saying, okay, this is a day when you have to go, and then they can say, well, I know that, that you're gonna get it at least this many times a year because this is the day where I'm forcing you to go. So I understand the motivation behind that. And using those as a critique, in some sense, is unfair and uncharitable because it has good intent. So we don't have, in the Lutheran Church, holy days of obligation like the Catholic Church. Depends on how you want to define oh. it. I would say every Lord's Day is a holy day of obligation. I mean, honestly. But, but in that sense, I don't mean that, you know, if you miss a Sunday or if you miss, a, miss the, the distribution of the sacrament, that somehow now you're in a state of mortal peril. Um, so I understand days of holy obligation, but the problem with that is that it really does say, well, I only, you know, how often do I have to get it? And the greatest example I've ever heard, which is not mine, but I have stolen it, for answering the question, how often do I have to do this? How often do I have to confess? How often do I have to um, receive, the sac receive the Eucharist is, well, think about it in terms of a marriage. 
What wife says, how often do I have to tell my husband I love him? What husband says, how often do I have to tell my wife I love her? How often do I have to give my spouse a hug or a kiss? And then do you see how, when you, when you start looking at it with that example in mind, you know, when you put it in that setting, and it, the question all of a sudden becomes completely laughable. It's obscure and obtuse. How often do I have to? I don't have to. Do I have to tell my wife I love her? No, I don't have to, but I do it. In one sense, I have an obligation to tell her that, but it's an obligation of love, in which case it's really not an obligation at all. Um, so, do I have to tell her I love her? Not really, but I do. It's something that I get to do. I, I have a wife, and so now I have this wonderful person that I get to tell, that I, I get to share my love with. I get to give her a hug and a kiss, and, and vice versa. And this is the thing. So when you apply that to the sacrament, well, how often do you have to get it? It's a completely irrelevant question, because it's never about have-tos. I have an obligation to it only because that's where Jesus is, and, that, and Jesus is giving me him, and I want Jesus, and I love him, and my teeny love says I can't, get, you know, I can't bear to be apart from him. So in that sense, my obligation is there, but it isn't an obligation like a mandate that Christ is putting on me. It's an obligation that stems purely from the fact that I love Jesus and I want Jesus and I want to be with Jesus and therefore I go where Jesus is and if I know that Jesus is going to be there why would I not go there? It's not about have-tos, it's always about get-tos. So if you know that Jesus is going to be somewhere and telling you, hey, everything's okay, you're the best bear in all the world. If you know that Jesus is going to say that to you and if you want to be the best bear in all the world and you love Jesus and you know that he loves you, why wouldn't you go? Do you see that? It's like that. That's what Luther means when he says, when I tell you to do this, I'm just telling you to be nothing more than a Christian, which really, when it, what it boils down to is, I'm just telling you to love Jesus and to let him love you. That's it. If you love Jesus, you go where he is. Not you know, to stay away from Jesus is to say that you don't really love him because love can't stay away. I have to be where he is. Faith has to be where Jesus is. It wants him. It craves him. It's not full without him. So when you, when you make up your mind and say, I... Um, I am making up my mind that I am going to stay away from him. I don't want to be. You know, when, you, when you start thinking about it that way, and it's good enough for me that I can think about the fact that he loves me. All right, but what about you? Do I love Jesus? Yeah, well, how do you know? And, 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 and what do you do with your love? Because if your love doesn't go to Jesus, then do you really love Jesus? It's like if the, if the prodigal son came home and the father looked at him and said, oh, well, he's here. I'll wait for him to come while I sit in my easy chair. And the kid comes in and he says, oh, son, I love you. And he's like, well, but do you really? Because you didn't run out to him. You've, ex you've not expressed any love to him, you see. So go as often as you want. Because it's always something that you get to. The, the immortal words of the, of the late professor Norman Nagel, uh, you know, you are nothing if not given to. Nothing if not given to. Everything is something that you receive. You're just kind of a spoiled child, but in the best way. You know, not the spoiled temper tantrum child, but the child that, that realizes that they're spoiled and goes, wow, I sure have it good, don't I? Yeah, just, you know, check your privilege. You know. <laughs> ah, what a crock. I had another conversation yesterday with a different coworker about church discipline. Okay. She's not going to church because she doesn't like some discipline that their pastor 
Oh, yeah, that's... You know what I'm saying? And she is afraid she's going to have to have that conversation with her husband at some point that she doesn't want to go back as long as this guy's there. And I was trying to explain to her the point of church discipline is to separate you so that your desire to come back makes you change your behavior. Yes, that's the whole point of it. a different way of looking. You have to look at church discipline for what it is. When your dad gives you, when your dad gives you a spanking, do you say, "I'm never gonna, you know, I'm gonna run away from this house. I'm never gonna say I love him anymore. I'm, I'm never gonna give him another hug. I'm never gonna accept another present from him. I'm never gonna run an errand with him again, until you know, I hate his guts until I get a new dad who's better. Tommy's dad down the road is way better than my dad. You know, that's the same. That's the that's that opinion. Dad, daddy gives you a spanking, and your response to the spanking is, "I hate you," and. Uh, I never want anything, I don't want anything to do with you again and I wish I had a new dad. And you tell your dad, drop dead. That's, that's the attitude. So, it, and that's a very uh, pernicious attitude in the church. It's very dangerous. The other thing is this. Um, if you're staying away because you don't like, then that's actually hatred. And remember what hatred is. It's drinking poison and waiting for your enemy to die. It's, wor- it's not going to affect anybody but you. So, what, what you need to do is embrace a little bit of humility. And if it's really that big of an issue, you know, cowboy up and go talk to him. That's the thing. Nobody talks to anybody anymore. It's, oh, this happened? Oh, boy, well, I hate their guts. Well, go talk to them. See, you know, especially with pastors, we're always given the, we're always portrayed in the worst light anytime we exercise any kind of church discipline. Uh... <laughs> Come talk to a pastor sometime about why they implemented church discipline, and you might leave with a completely different opinion, but nobody does. It's all, oh, they did that? To, in my church? Newsflash. You belong to the church, but the church sure don't belong to you. That's an important thing. You are not the godsend of the church. The church has functioned without you, and the church will continue to function without you. If you decide to throw a tantrum and say, well, they'll sure miss me when I'm gone, your pastor will mourn your death, which is what it is, a death. Your pastor will mourn you, but the church will go on. The church will go on because it isn't your church. You belong to the church, but the church does not belong to you. Always remember that. The church doesn't belong to you. It's a very important thing. There are so many problems that arise in the church because Christians think the church belongs to them. Um, And in the local setting, they believe that the pastor is their employee, that that they should get special treatment because, well, you're my pastor. I pay your salary, don't I? Okay, sure. But when the babysitter comes to watch the kids, who does the babysitter answer to? The kids he watches or the parents who are gone? Whose rules is the babysitter going to follow? The ones that the kids want him to or the rules that the parents have said, these are the rules? You see, that's what it is. I'm not, I'm not, your, I'm not the employee of the church. No pastor is the employee. They're the babysitter. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the babysitter of the church because daddy's going to come home. I don't know when he's coming home, but he put me here and he said, now you wash my people and here are the rules, okay? And I said, okay, there's pizzas in the fridge. Make sure they eat when they're supposed to eat. <laughs> There's bread and wine in there. Make sure they get what they're supposed to get. Make sure that you, you sprinkle some water on them every night. They get dirty, so you know, forgive them their sins and all that. But I'll be home at some point, and I wait up waiting for him and making sure I'm doing the best to take care of his people. But take away, take away my salary, and guess what? I'm not going to move. I'll stay here. <laughs>
There's a thing, and this is just a story and then we'll be done, but there's a, there's an, a, a journal of Lutheran liturgy called Gottesdienst, which I've talked about before. We have a subscription to it down in the St. Jerome Library. And this journal also puts, they give an award called the Saber of Boldness, which is a big, like a, a, a cavalry saber. And the Saber of Boldness goes out once a year to pastors who um, exhibit extraordinary faithfulness and bravery in times of extraordinary hardship. And uh, there is a pastor who has received it. I think he was the second person ever to receive it. And he was in a congregation that hated his guts and tried to run him out. And what they did was they stopped paying the utilities at the parsonage. They took away his salary. Uh, they did all kinds of stuff to harm him just you know, through, through the bank account and all of this. And he stayed. His family went on food stamps. And he stayed there until his family couldn't survive there. And he only left because he was forced to. And they hated his guts and he stayed there for almost a year with no salary and no utilities, no nothing. And he stayed. And uh, that's what a pastor is supposed to do. You know, if, if a congregation hangs the salary over the pastor's head and says, do it this way or we're gonna cut your salary, then the pastor says, all right, cut my salary. You know, I, don't, I don't live by bread alone. So um, I'm the babysitter and you are the children. And that's the relationship that is here. That's why the pastor sometimes has to administer discipline. I'm the, I'm the spiritual father here. Um, and I have all of the authority that, that the real daddy gave me when he left. He said, if they're bad, give them a spanking, blah, 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 blah. You know, so I do but he's the one ultimately who I'm following. Doesn't mean that, you know, I don't love people, but there's a certain level of authority that goes along with being the pastor that means that, you know, when people get angry that you've done something, when you've enacted church discipline, the only thing you can say is, what do you want me to do? Do you think, do you think I like doing this? I hate church discipline. And, and, and weak pastors actually will refuse to enact church discipline because it's such a hard thing to do. It breaks a pastor's heart to do that. But we only ever hear about it from the other side. There's, boy, he's such a heartless, gutless, blah, 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 son of a gun. That pastor, I'll never go back there again. I want a new dad. And that's it. You just hate your daddy's guts. So, anyway, maybe try that approach. <laughs> Just, just yeah, replay, give him the podcast. Yeah, don't say anything about it. Just, hey, you know, listen, listen to my pastor. He's got this great, you should really listen to this episode. <laughs> All right, let's pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.